not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story of life after alcohol there since my first day of recovery in 2011. I tell my story there and I invite you to share your stories here. And before you meet our guest, last week I told you I was on baby watch. I need to tell you that sweet little grandson number three arrived safe and sound. Uh, on last Wednesday, and he is just adorable, nine pounds, six ounces. My daughter-in-law is an absolute rock star, <laughs> and we are overjoyed. And when I'm done chatting with today's guest, I get to go babysit him. So let me tell you, life is pretty good over here in my world. So having said all that, it is now time to introduce you to today's guest, and she is Julie. Now, Julie is a listener to the show and uh, has offered to share her story, and as per usual, when we're dealing with uh, uh, pan-global conversations, we've had some hiccups to get here, but we made it, and I'm so glad she's here. Julie, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you, Jean. Lovely to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm excited to have you tell us about yourself and about your journey into this life of living alcohol-free. So let's jump right into it. Okay. Uh, Well, I'm from England, um, and I met, well, I didn't meet Jean, but I heard about Jean and the Bubble Hour um, early into my sobriety. Um, And then I messaged Jean and said, you don't have many British people why don't you have some British people and she went go on then and I went but my my story is really boring um she said no everyone thinks that so um I'll tell you my story and then we can discuss whether it is boring or not um so um I'm 50 years old um I grew up in a sleepy village in Herefordshire which is uh on the Welsh borders of England um my mum and dad owned a garage uh, my auntie and uncle lived in the village shop. My granddad lived up the drive. My granny had the post office. Uh, so it was a very much um, a typical 70s English family setup uh, where everybody knew everybody else. Um, it's not like that these days, but it, that was what it was like then. Um, so I had a normal start to childhood. Um, I know my dad went to the pub every night without fail. Mum and dad were both not particularly loving um didn't say they loved me um things like that but I have quite a few happy memories um playing with other children in the drive cousins meeting up playing in the paddling pool on hot summer's days in the 70s um that all sort of stopped in 76 um my dad died um and he was just 46 and I was eight um my younger sister was six, I was eight, my brother was nine, and my sister was ten. Um, mum went into complete meltdown. Um, she, she went grey overnight. She was 37, uh, four children under 12, and a business to run um, that she didn't know how to run, really. Um, so that was very, really very difficult. Um, 
by the time I was around 11, a new man had moved in. At first, quite nice. Um, but as time went on, uh, how can I say, I don't really want to say too much, but inappropriate touching, let's put it that way. Um, I've no recall on how long it went on for. I've had flashbacks of particular scenarios, um, but nothing in more detail. He was an alcoholic. He was very violent, violent to my mum. He used to come in in the middle of the night, blast the music out. We used to be in bed. Me and my sister used to cry. Um, he used to beat up my older brother and we could hear, I don't know, God knows what was happening in the bedroom, but hearing knocking everywhere. Um, he was extremely controlling. I remember we couldn't go out to a firework display once. We had to walk to the local discos. Mum walked us there, that, um, there and back six miles. We even had to walk to parents' evening at school once. <laughs> um, I remember sometimes um, he drove like a maniac, um, turning lights off on country roads so he could go as fast as possible. Um, when I woke up one morning, my mum had about 50 stitches in her face. Um, nothing was really mentioned about it, but it was a car accident. Um, so life went on. Um, it wasn't a great time. And by the time I was 14 or 15, he wasn't really living in the home anymore. Um, but he still had a control over mum and the family. Um, I did quite well at school. I had really good friends. Um, a particular good friend. I was, we were inseparable. I spent much of the time with her, at her with her family at the weekends. Um, cause they had sort of a perfect family and I didn't. Um, we used to hitchhike to the city, going to pubs and clubs when we were 15. <laughs> um, uh, my mum, my brother and my sister moved into a small bungalow in, in the village. And mum had about four jobs, cleaning jobs. She was working day and night. It was tough. Um, when I was about 16, 17, I met a Welsh man at a party in Wales um I went off to live with him so I was running away a lot <laughs> um he was the same age I lived on the doll with him in his council house um hung around with his friends we have no money um he did a training year with a photographic company um and I just went to work with him every day um so there I was doing nothing much with my life I got a job as a telephonist receptionist I was a bright girl but you know i nothing really seemed to work for me I was bored uh we rented a flat um but then I used to come home to Hereford and wish that I hadn't gone over to Wales my sister was nannying in Antigua um when she was 19 uh I'd never been abroad at that time that's unheard of now isn't it an 18 year old who hasn't been abroad uh so I saved money for my one-way ticket and I went there um, drinking wise, um, uh, it never really occurred to me. Um, I enjoyed going out and having a drink, but it really wasn't on my radar. Um, I got back from Antigua and, um, started working, went, got into another relationship, which was violent. Uh, I remember him strangling me one night in bed or trying to, um, then I went with another man. He got sent to prison for GBH. Uh, it sounds great, doesn't it? You, it you'll, you'll understand how different my life is now. Um, so looking back, um, I, I was already restless, irritable, discontented, and men were leading my life choices. 
uh, after another couple of years, um, I, what did I do then? Let's just look through my notes. Um, I met another, another man <laughs> and, um, he used to work in an office license and I, and it didn't really occur to me because today I'll be going, Oh my goodness, that's amazing. What a great job. But it didn't really, um, occur to me, you know, we would drink at the weekend, but not much. Um, I was about 27 by now. Um, so, you know, just a normal drinker. Um, then we split up. He didn't want a family and I did. Um, and I met my husband in 1996, um, who was a football manager for a conference football club. Um, he was 13 years older than me and, uh, we fell totally and utterly in love. Um, within six months, I was pregnant with our first son. We had some lovely drinking nights. He drank less than me, but he was quite amused at my youth and carefree disposition, I think. Um, throughout my pregnancy, I didn't drink. My body didn't want any, um, which was quite unusual. Um, my son arrived. Uh, my husband got the sack, <laughs> which happens in the football manager business, unfortunately. Um, but we didn't have any money to fall back on. So um, we uh, he decided to go into charity work, which he was in before. Um, which led us to London. So we lived on the outskirts of London. And um, I decided uh, that it would be a good idea to do my A-levels again because I started them but sort of just walked away when they got a bit difficult. Uh, so I was doing my A-levels and uh, became pregnant with um, my number two son. Um, and this is where it turned for me. Uh, we were living in Oxfordshire, which is about 30 or 40 miles outside London. I was isolated and alone, two children under 17 months. I was depressed, uh, postnatal depression. I was bored um, and I was 30 and I just used to use wine to wind down after a busy day. And then the habit became a bit of a dependency. Um, I'd open the bottle earlier and earlier uh, some days I would open it around midday and then try to sober up for seven o'clock when Chris came home. Many times I would collapse in bed and if the children had needed medical attention, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Um, at this point, my husband noticed my drinking and was concerned and complained about it. But in my eyes, he was just boring and he was telling me what to do and I didn't like it. Um, I started my degree course um, and managed to balance university, children and drinking quite well. Um, it was starting to become a problem when I was about 32. I got my degree, um, a teaching degree, and got various teaching jobs. And we moved to Surrey um, in 2003. I was drinking quite a bit, um, but I didn't think it was out of hand particularly. Although looking back now, it probably was. Uh, I might drink after the school pickup with a friend. I got drunk quite a bit, probably had about four or five bottles of wine and enjoyed it. Uh, sometimes went into work a little bit worse for wear. Uh, my husband was working overseas a lot and I was lonely. He would mention that I drank too much and, you know, and I kept thinking he's boring, he's boring, shut up, don't tell me what to do. Uh, I wasn't ready to hear it. Um, so this lonely theme keeps cropping up. Um, and then fast forward to 2011, uh, my boys were about 10 or 12, um, and I began messaging ex-boyfriends, um, and very much drink-induced, uh, fueled texts and 
lots of things I wouldn't care to mention here. My drinking was getting bad now. Um, I'd long since stopped buying wine with a weekly shop, um, or I bought a couple of bottles, then I propped it out, uh, up with my own. Uh, so my husband used to say, we need to talk in the mornings, and I would dread it. And I said, no, we don't, no, we don't. I tried to moderate. Um, I promised only to drink cider and beers because it was white wine that was my problem. Um, and I started to have massive cravings for wine. I'd think about it constantly throughout most of the day. I would look forward to it. I'd leave work as soon as possible in order to start on it. I'd buy it from different shops so that nobody really saw me buying as much as I did. Um, many times I'm very guilty of, of drinking and driving. Um, I hid the empties. Um, I hid my wine. And as I was hiding it, I was thinking, this is what an alcoholic does, and laughed to myself. <laughs> um, I'd deposit them in neighbors' recycling bins. I'd throw them out of car windows. Um, and then it escalated to me opening it after school and then swigging it in the car on the way home. Um, I could now drink a bottle in about 15 minutes um, to get me to a place where I wanted to be, and I'd stepped over the line. You know, I wish I could have seen it coming, but I couldn't, and I didn't. Um, I put on quite a bit of weight. Um, I was guilt-ridden. I was living a lie. I'd go into work and be this person and then feel so bad inside that, oh, my goodness, you know, you wouldn't realise what I've been doing last night, how much I'd had to drink. I was drinking wine in a teacup, so my husband didn't know. Um and I think the day that it all changed was the day that I went to AA. So AA has been my godsend. Um, I decided, well, I went to the doctors for my depression to get some more tablets and to think about the medication. And I ended up saying, and I drink too much. And I kept on saying it. And inside my head was going, no, don't say it. Don't say it. Sure, sure. sure. Um, don't, because you have to do something about it now. You know, you stepped over the line. But Something inside me said, this is time, you know, you cannot carry on like this. I was blacking out most nights. Um, I didn't really realize that then. The things that I've learned through AA, I know I was blacking out all the time. Um, and I was very, very difficult to live with. Uh, so AA came along, a room full of people who understood me, um, who didn't judge me. And I immediately threw myself into sobriety. Um, so I walked into AA on the 21st of June, uh, 2018. And it's now the 28th of May, 2019. And I haven't had a single drop since. Um, ironically, we'd been planning an adult weekend away that weekend, the Friday. <laughs> um, so we'd hired a lake house in the Cotswold. And it was going to be a drinking and eating fest. Um, and I texted my friends to say I've given up drinking. They texted back to say, what a silly weekend to do that. Do it next week. Da, da, da. And I just said, look, I've gone to AA. And, you know, I didn't really want to have to text them and tell them quite as soon because I hadn't really accepted it myself. But um, they just said I didn't realize, you know, it was that bad. And they were so supportive. Um, so my journey in sobriety had begun. Um, I went to a meeting every single night for a good couple of months. Um, they started at eight o'clock, which was great. Although I had to deal with cravings between five and seven thirty, 
um, before I went out. But I say cravings, but actually the feeling of craving left me as soon as I'd walked into AA. I don't know what it was, um, but it was more that I changed my habits. So from 5.30, you know, as soon as I got in, I would I would pour that wine. So I knew I had to change things. So I had to come in to my house in a different way or do something completely different um, because I'm just dealing with habits. And my head was kept saying things and I just bat them away saying, I don't do that anymore. So my evenings were full with meetings and I come home, go to bed, go to work, go to a meeting the next day. Um, I started on my 12 step program. Um, some of the things I found hard, um, I thought I'd share, uh, was the God thing. Definitely. Um, I don't believe in God, but I went there with a willing and open mind. Um, and the relief that I felt as soon as I walked in there was powerful enough for me to think, well, I'm just going to go with this. Fake it till you make it, as they say in AA. I'm going to go with this. It seems to work. Um, so I have, and it's working so far. Um, the other thing I struggled with is acceptance. Um, I did have a f- real sense of feeling it's not fair. Why did this happen to me? Um, I still do to a certain extent. Um, but the more I found out about the disease, the more I know I can't drink like normies, like normal people. Um, you know, I, I just can't. Um, and I've never come away from a meeting without a small nugget of wise words or something to ponder on. I've made so many great new friends and I found out such a lot about myself, the reasons why I drank. And now it's my turn to do the work to change, to change my mindset so that I don't feel that need to numb out and drink. Someone discussed the bubble hour with me on one meeting quite early in sobriety, perhaps a month in or so. Um, I listened in and I loved it. Um, I re- even though, you know, from the other side of the world, I heard so much about my story and their stories. Um, and then through an interview with Heidi Ferrer, um, I found out about the secret Facebook group, She Recovers, The Unruffled and The Homies. Um, and through Dawn Nickel, um, I found out about a couple of UK based groups, which I've just joined called Club Soda and Women Who Don't Drink. I've read numerous uh, what I now know as Quit Lit, um, The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober uh, was my first read. Um, uh, it was just brilliant. Um, it gave me a great sense of hope. Um, through to I've just read This Naked Mind by Annie Grace, and I listened to her podcast as well. And they... It, Annie Grace has really put me off drinking with her references to asbestos and cancer and just the poison. It's, um, yeah, recently really, really put me off, which is great. Uh, so I've got on my notes here how I found it. Um, and then what keeps me going. Uh, so it's hard at first, I think, because you're dealing with habits that need breaking and, Drinking is such a socially acceptable drug that people question you when you're not drinking, um, which is really unfair, but you just have to deal with that. I found social situations really hard, um, so I protected myself by avoiding them. Um, And going out isn't the same now, but I am only 11 months. Um, 
I don't suffer fools gladly and I get bored very easily. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, I don't pussyfoot around the place. I just think, right, that's it. I'm bored. I'm going. Um, so I do have to get my head around not being boring. And I know a lot of people struggle with that. Um, it was uh, one month into sobriety um, it was the end of the school year and um, parents, I don't know what happens over there, but parents give little gifts to teachers and head teachers and things. And I got, I got given 13 bottles of alcohol and I was four <laughs> weeks sober. Um, and any other time I would have been delighted, rubbing my hands together with glee, thinking, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, however, I just had to get rid of them. I, I couldn't have them in my office. So I was just relabeling them and giving them off, take, taking them out and going, oh, there you are, there's your, there's your gift, there's your gift for Christmas. I'm sure the staff knew what I was doing. <laughs> but I was giving them away as quickly as I was getting them, so I went home without any alcohol at all. Um, I celebrated my 50th birthday in sobriety. Um, I was three months in then. And before, I would have had a party. I was going to have a party with lots of dancing and lots of drinks. Um, but I didn't, um, I had a small gathering with close friends. It was probably the first time I'd been out socially drinking. Um, my work colleagues, when they heard, they said, Oh, that's a bit boring. Not having a party. I just shrugged it off. Um, so I, I have avoided social situations because my sobriety comes first and I'd rather not put myself into a situation where I'll feel jealous of others or want to drink or feel badly. So, um, I, I did go out this weekend and had mocktails, which is actually really nice. Um, but that is something I'm still dipping my feet in. So what keeps me going? Um, I look and feel so much better. I don't have any guilt, any shame, any remorse, and I have freedom. Um, I've lost about a stone in weight. Uh, I've got another one to go probably. But I have substituted sugar for my alcohol, um, I know. But I, I kind of needed a treat for myself and felt those glasses of wine were empty calories anyway, so now I could actually enjoy some nice puddings. <laughs> uh, I started um, an app, a clock-up app, app called I'm Done Drinking and calculated the seconds, the minutes, the hours. So that's kept me going. So as I talked today, I'm on 342 days, 3,400 drinks not consumed, £2,567 saved and 414,261 calories not consumed. <laughs> and the more days you clock up, the more you've got to lose. Um, and so I think that really helps with um, carrying on the sobriety as well. Um, having hundreds of posts coming into the Facebook page with um, showing people struggling, showing people celebrating, sharing stories. I can read them at any time. That inspires me and helps me. Um, I had a sponsor in AA, as you do, um, who took me through the steps. It was really supportive. I now have a lovely sponsee who I'm taking through the steps of AA uh, through the big book. Um, working on myself, so I know the reasons why I used to drink. And now the hard work is trying to sort all of those reasons out. And there's, uh, you know, there's always a reason why someone wants to numb, numb their feelings like I used to. Uh, so the hard work uh, begins on yourself um, and giving yourself space and time and spiritually and mentally 
um, being the best person you can be. I'm not there yet by any means, um, but I'm, I'm on the right track. Um, so if you put it all into perspective, um, I think the message is to keep it simple. All I have to do is not take a drink today. Um, with all the other stuff that other people have to deal with, that's not a hardship. Um, I see the benefits of my lifestyle change in everything I do. Um, and I don't feel I want to go back to the person I was before or the struggles I had. And that sort of is my boring little story. <laughs> well, you're anything but boring, <laughs> my dear, and you tell your story so well. Um, I have some questions for you, though. As uh, The first thing I want to know, you are days away from celebrating your first year milestone. Uh, do you have plans well, to celebrate? Um, I got myself a tattoo. Yeah. I, Ha-ha. Yeah. I always said to myself, oh, tattoos, everybody's getting tattoos. I'm, I'm not going to be one of those people who gets a tattoo. Um, so I thought, why not? Just go for it. So I've got a recovery tattoo and I've sort of designed it, but with some ideas from others. So I've got a dandelion, um, which signifies change. Um, and then it's blowing out and then the, uh, I don't know what the little things, the fronds or, or the seeds, uh, cha- change into birds. Mm-hmm. So they fly up, up my back. Oh. So it's about freedom, freedom and oh, change. Yeah. That sounds beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. I think that's Beautiful. And uh, what I love about a dandelion is that it's something we think of as being um, a bad thing. And yet it's beautiful in its own way and magical in its own way. And I feel like that's how a lot of people feel about their addiction once they're into Mm. recovery. They realize it was actually the best thing that ever happened to them because it forced them to make changes. I definitely think so. And I think also if this hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't be changing myself and making myself a better person um, and being kind to others and thoughtful and tolerant and all the things that AA, you know, they say to do all those things, do the next right thing. And I wouldn't be like that. I'd have just carried on bumbling around being my normal self, which was, you know, a bit selfish. So it's made me, it's going to make me into a better person. <laughs> the, the steps of AA are really geared towards mm. looking inward, reflecting, examining where things went off track, taking responsibility mm. for that and correcting course. From the story you told, I think you've, you know, you've kind of identified your core traumas. I mean, between losing your father so tragically and unexpectedly, and then um, having an abusive mm. stepfather come into your life. And then probably, I'm guessing here, that um, the, the sort of result of resulting string of bad relationships. I'm sure that that compounded everything. I'm sure there was a million small traumas Mm. through all of those as well that sort of repeated the pattern. In going through the the steps, what can you talk to us a little bit about that for for listeners that are maybe, you know, not familiar with AA or not familiar with that healing process? Can you take us through a little bit of sort of what you've learned about yourself and how you feel towards your old self? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Reflecting on that. um, 
going through the steps. So steps, you've you've got to accept that you have um, a problem. So first of all, so acceptance is a big thing. And then you've got to be willing to find a, a power greater than yourself to deal with that. You know, just to say, if there are problems in your life, my higher power is going to deal with that. I'm not going to take that on board. So you've got to have the faith that something is going to do the right thing for you. So that's steps one to three. Um, when you look at yourself in steps, step four, uh, you write down uh, an inventory um, and you write down resentments and you do a sex inventory and a fear inventory. Well, this is how I did it. I think people do it in different ways, but I think this is sort of the big book way of doing it. Um, and you write down the people that you hold resentments for, um, and you write down why you feel that way. It, it, it's, it's quite a painful process. Um, it took me a while, although it's taken some people take years to do it. It took me about three weeks. I went through the steps really quickly um because I, i'm that sort of person i just said right i'm on it right let's do it let's do it every week you know let's get this done um and i am a sort of person who likes to get things done um and it is painful you look at um who you have resentments for why you have that resentment what part of your what they call it a defect of character i'm not quite sure whether i like that term um, because it's quite a negative, um, but they say, what part of you then fit, you know, so are you selfish? Um, are you, um, you know, looking for, um, I don't know the words, I can't get them out, Jean, but are, are you, you know, <laughs> so I think it's the idea to sort of take, um, yes, examine exactly what your it. role is yeah. in, in the resentment issue, right? Mm. Like what, how do you contribute to it or just find a way to sort of mm. take responsibility for mm. what role do you play in this? Not, not no. blaming yourself for it, but just, just almost like from a neutral ground, right? Looking at it and saying like, how yeah. how am yeah. I perpetuating this yeah. thing? Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, and then with your sponsor, you go through um, your inventory. Um, for me, it took about five hours and I cried most of the way through it. Um, and I don't cry. You know, I'm, I'm quite tough. I don't cry in front of anybody really. And um, yeah, about five hours and I cried my way through it. <laughs> um but it was really good. It was really cathartic. Um, it's good to get it out. And also my sponsor was able to give me uh, a different perspective on it, you know, because I talked a lot about my mum saying, well, why didn't my mum stop? And why didn't my mum do this? You know, and she said, you know, your mum had a lot of stuff going on. She'd lost her husband. She had four children. And although I knew that subconsciously, somebody just saying that out loud to me, um, really, yeah, really helped and really affected me. So, uh, and then you go about working and being a better person in, in the other steps. So you're looking at yourself and every day making the right choices and being kind and tolerant to others, um, and helping other people. Um, 
and trying not trying to uh, think about what you say before you say it. So being um, considerate of others um, and always wanting to help and, and, and trying to be a good person. Um, and then you have your little daily inventories to make sure they'll uh, have a think about your day, how it's gone. And um, uh, if you need to put something right, to put something right, to say you're sorry, to apologize. Did you have to go through that? Did you have a series of amends that I you did. needed to make I to did, other because people? Because I didn't, I, I always think, well, I, I, I didn't do that much, you know. <laughs> I had a couple of things, but... I didn't have a huge, great, big list. And I know lots of people do have lists of things. But because I drank a lot privately, and it was it was my nearest and dearest that I needed to uh, make amends to, you know. It was, it was my husband who stuck by me for 23 years um, and who I, you know, didn't treat well. So I'm making a living amends to him, um, to um, make up for the years of um, things that I did or the way I treated him. What, uh, define what a living amends I think it's, means. Well, I, it, for me, um, it's showing, showing you love somebody um, and being thoughtful and kind to them. And, and it is apologising, and I have apologised, and we've talked it through. I think it's about... Um, appreciating what you've got every day um, and not apologizing every day for everything it's not that but it's about treating them in the way that they should be treated being kind and considerate it's really walking the walk right Mm. like just living what you believe in I want to thank you for your honesty around you know broaching the subject of some of the inappropriate behavior Mm. towards men when you were drinking because I really think that's a symptom of codependency and some of those other like mal I'm using air quotes because I'm not I'm not a psychologist but maladaptive tendencies that are all like swept up into the precursors of addiction you know I think that they're all the ways that we're set up for addiction and then I think I don't know what it's like for men but I feel like for women we look back and think Mm. oh my god I was promiscuous or I was flirtatious and I I did this wrong and Mm. I did that wrong and I'm such a horrible person and I mean we might have done horrible things and yet understanding that that's a symptom of the, the things like the, yeah. the precursors to addiction almost. And I, and I don't say that mm. as an excuse, but as an explanation, women like have a tendency to keep a scorecard of all the awful things we've done and then yeah. use it as evi- evidence yeah, against ourselves. You know? And I mean, even here on the bubble hour, we talk about a lot of stuff, but I feel like it's that there's so much mm. shame around things like that it's hard to talk about and you know in the case of infidelity mm. then there's other people involved and mm. so it's not just telling yeah. your story it's telling other people's story and and you know i feel like no matter what degree it is you know whether it's like an inappropriate facebook message or mm. running off to france for the weekend with someone that's not your spouse what how wherever it falls mm. on the gamut we talk about a living amends right i mean that that yeah. to not be that person anymore also requires extending some compassion mm. into your own past and saying, yeah. how, can, how can I heal that part of me? 
How do you feel about that now? Are you, was that hard to do? Was that, um, and I, uh, sorry, I, no. I don't mean to imply that you ran off to <laughs> France with anyone. No. <laughs> I mean, even just, to, <laughs> even, <laughs> even just to acknowledge yeah. just having done mm. regrettable things that are out of character and, and hurtful and just not who anyone wants to be. And, so I, I just, I'm always mm. grateful for anyone that's willing to talk about that because for every person that can, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a hundred more who can't and who need to hear a message of forgiveness and compassion and healing and that you need mm-hmm. to stop punishing yourself for that and just get to work on healing mm. and living your life um, it's, differently. It's a really good subject to talk about um, that you can't talk about. That's very difficult. Um I think you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of shame involved in it. I found the people that I was promiscuous with were old ex-boyfriends. So they knew me when I was 18. They knew me when I was 20. They knew me when I was young. So with me, it's wrapped up in getting older um, and feeling unattractive and um, external validation. So when I look at that closely, what I need to work on is work on myself and the internal validation that I can give myself. It needs to come from inside. I can't have external, you know, people pleasing. There's a lot of uh, stuff on people pleasing and addiction as well, isn't there? And having, being able to be at peace with yourself and praise yourself and do all those things that we find really hard to do it without somebody else um, externally validating. I'm having counselling at the moment to talk through that because I'm my worst critic. I'm, you know, so I, I can be, you know, really hateful to myself because I feel really remorseful. You know, I just think my lovely husband and that's all I was doing. But I was caught up in it. Um, and there's something about also getting a high from that, you know, getting, uh, you know, something that pleases you, you know, a dopamine fix or something um, that's addictive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, it, it, it's difficult. And I'm, I'm nowhere near there. But um, I know that it's got to come from within. So I've got to work on my spiritual side. I've got to work on being kind to myself. Um, and you know, that I'm a good person really, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) And I, I think you're right about the dopamine hit because we have to understand that addiction is really about Mm. our, our pleasure reward circuitry just being completely hijacked by, uh, genetics and conditioning, I assume, are the two main components from from everything I know. And um, so it makes sense that 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 circuitry is also susceptible to other forms of manipulation and um, and mm. weakened, I guess, to to dopamine hits. And you know, I when I was going to counseling, my my um, counselor talked to me about parenting and and about how. Uh, a dopamine hit like occurs when a child looks into its mother's eyes. And so she was telling me like from a parenting point of view, make sure you lock eyes with your children, no matter what age they are. Like when you can, like look into their eyes and just take that, 
even if it's just a nanosecond, that pause of looking deep, there's actually like a, 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 a dopamine response for the child. And, um, and so you can literally just give them a little boost by doing that. And so that was great news to me. But then I also was like, well, if that's true, then I also need to lock eyes with my own mother a little bit and allow Mm. my soul to be fed by her. And, um, I, you know, I, I understand there's probably lots of people listening that don't have that opportunity to do that with their parent of origin for various reasons. But um, I do think there's, you know, there's other ways that we get that too. I mean, there's there's our connection with nature, mm-hmm. with animals, with chocolate, with <laughs> meditation, with ourselves. So yeah, there's a lot of um, natural ways that that um, we can tap into. And of course, when you're drinking, you're like, oh, for God's sake, don't tell me that herbal tea is going to be as good as mine. But I promise you, given time, it's a bit like um, when people, when I've said I'm lonely, you know, because there's a lot of loneliness in my life, uh, or there was, you know, and I felt lonely, and that was why I drank. And people say, well, get yourself a hobby. And I'll say, oh, shut up about blooming hobby. I don't want to (laughs) be You know, and they would say, what do you do? Well, I don't do anything because all I do when I get home from work is drink and everything else gets in the way. <laughs> so I, I tried pottery. I tried silversmithing. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, I didn't go half the time because I'd had a bottle of wine before it started. So I couldn't go. <laughs> but um, I laugh about it now. But um, yeah, it's, it is about hobbies. And I think as a woman, when you've had children and you've been at home a little bit, you don't really have hobbies and then you end up being the homemaker. You know, as much as I hate to say it, I do do a lion's share of the housework at home because that's sort of how it's gone. Because when my children were small, obviously I was at home, my husband was a breadwinner and then I've gone back to work um, and I go back and I work full time and I do do the lion's share of, of, of a lot of the housework and everything. And I'm busy um you know and I'm running around like you know what um running around doing stuff but and then you end up not with much of a life not with much of an interest you know not going out not having Mm -hmm. a social life um because you're busy doing all the other bits that are a bit boring and don't do anything for your soul I can see that I think that that Mm. that happens and we well it's neglect I mean if we neglect our children, there's yeah. serious ramifications. But somehow we feel like we so can neglect ourselves. You're looking after everybody and else, aren't you? And you piper. don't look after yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think so. You mentioned, you know, what it looks like for a woman. We tend to we tend to mm. overcompensate at home. But I feel like men mm. have a lot of pressure on them to be good providers, and you know, they like. With women, I mean, you know, how many women that are expecting children are asked, oh, are you going to stay home with your children? Are you going to work? I mean, men don't have that option. There's different pressures on them and and expectations. And what do you learn about expectations in a 12-step group? Mm, Expectations are (laughs) resentments waiting to happen, right? (laughs) And resentments are so destructive that they uh, form one of the steps of of the program. I want to ask you, um, in the time we have remaining, um, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you're a, a teacher, an educator. I have a couple questions for you regarding that. First of all, I have heard sometimes people write to me as educators, they're very stressed out, they're exhausted, 
but they also have an enormous amount of shame. I mean, everyone, almost everyone feels shame around their drinking. Educators and, and other types of care providers, but educators often have an additional mm. level of shame because people are trusting their children with them. And a lot of, I, a lot of people say, I can't go to mm. a meeting. Mm. I can't let anyone know that I'm in recovery mm. because it, it could really affect my Absolutely. career. I didn't. Did you feel that story, way at all? But the, um, I, when I was in the thick of my drinking, I used to go on AA on the, um, chat and you can chat on AA, like Sunday morning, I go, goodness me, I need to do something about this. So I'd go on AA chat and I chat to an AA person. I said, but I can't go because I'm actually a head teacher of a local school. I said, I can't go because I will know somebody because I know about 400 families in the 10 mile zone of where I live. I will know someone. I can't go. Um, but I just bit the bullet and went. And then as soon as I'd gone, I thought it doesn't even, and in fact, I've met somebody that I sort of know, uh, from the school, uh, area, but it was definitely one of the ones that stopped me from going to AA. One of the one things I'll know somebody and I'm big in the community and they'll dob on me and I'll lose my job. That's what I thought. Um, but it didn't happen. And because we've got the yellow card, you know, what you hear here, what we say here stays in this room. Um, and it's a confidential service. Nobody does talk about other people. And if I did meet a parent, for example, they're in there for the same reason. And to be honest, if you're in there, you're in a good place because you're getting help for it. I feel like that's exactly it, is that anyone else that is there, first of all, the people sitting in that room aren't like, oh, look who walked in. They're like, I'm glad you're here. You've been hurting and we're here to help you. And I'm glad to see you. So welcome. Yeah. It's lovely. Right. Let's let's do this together. Yeah. So whatever our inner critic is imagining, I mean, they're the judgment is not there. And um, even if um, the PTA was parked across mm. the street and saw you walking into the church basement mm. where <laughs> recovery meetings are held at 7 o'clock on Tuesday nights, <laughs> and c- circumstantially pieced together what was happening, um, really what, what shame is there in saying, mm. yes, mm. I addressed should be a strength, my life. I've healed this. Mm. Um, it should be a strength. And I really mm. feel like our addiction leverages yeah. our shame. And I think to as you were saying that, itself. I was thinking in my head, well, my brain was reasoning. It's another reason why you can't go to AA. It's another reason why you can't stop drinking for me, you know, because your brain is telling you, you need to drink, you know, doesn't want you to stop, you know, the disease that you, you know, you don't know you've got because your brain is reasoning all the time. Oh, it's reasonable to take a, it's reasonable to have a bottle of wine a night. It's reasonable to, um, you know, have some vodka after. It's reasonable to do this, that and the other. And you can reason till the cows come home. And I can reason and say, um, I can't go to AA because of my position. So therefore it's off limits for me. And then that's great because that frees my, my brain to say, come on then, let's carry on with the drinking. Let's carry on. 
Right. Mm-hmm. And that subconscious yeah. really, that's, that's its whole agenda, right? Because we've, we've trained ourselves to believe this is the solution. This is the coping yeah, yeah. mechanism and our Hold bodies on. are like, tick tock, <laughs> it's five o'clock, bring it on. And, yeah. and, uh, and here we are trying to change it. Yeah. I mean, um, that doesn't come easily and, Addiction really, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. it really pulls out all the stops. It's really tricky yeah. and it can sound so yeah. logical and so, so sensical uh, it, when we're just, you know, playing the tape in our head. I, f- I feel like that is a big reason why with 12-step, with therapies, mm. with other recovery groups, talking and sharing is such an important part of it because as soon as you say it out loud, you're yeah. like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, that's BS. I can hear it now that I'm yeah, saying it. Definitely. And so I think really the power in the rooms of AA <laughs> is having, being able to say what you can, what you want to. Um, no one's judging you. Everyone listen. No one can butt in. Everyone listens. Um, and there is just love in the room. Everybody wants to help everybody else. And it's such a great, a great place to be. So I would say to anybody, if they are worried that they will know somebody, if they're worried because of the connotations of AA, you know, I always thought I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not on a bench, part bench with a brown paper bag drinking special brew at five in the morning. I'm not that sort of person, but it happens to everybody. And it, for me, I was out of control and it was, it had control over me and I couldn't, I was powerless. I couldn't do anything about it. But in AA, you've got, it's like, I've got a new little family, um, that I meet up with. It's, it's just lovely. Just lovely. Yeah. Yeah, Definitely my new hobby. It's kind of your new hobby, right? (laughs) Eight years sober and I just only recently started dropping into some women's meetings in my community Mm -hmm. because I just wanted to be around other women that got it. No offense, men. I know that some of you guys are listening. Their mixed meetings are great too. For me, a women's meeting is where I feel safest. It's a good starting point for mm. me. But the other thing I really like is that it's pretty quick. You know, yeah, it's an hour. There's a there's a quick format. So I take a little thermos of tea from home, and I rarely yeah. even have time to finish my tea. Like to me, it's it's pretty quick. And it, and then it's just such a nice little shot in the arm of encouragement and support. Yeah. It's kind of like <laughs> taking a nice little bubble bath of support. um, So before you go, we're almost out of time, but um, you mentioned some online support groups. Mm -hmm. We went through those kind of quickly. So you mentioned the um, She Recovers and Don Nickel. Um, um, I'm just going to ask if you could talk about some of those again. And also I'm I'd like to know what your experience is like in adding online groups as a, as a patch in your patchwork of recovery. Um, so mm-hmm. we talked about how your 12-step meetings are supportive. How do online groups differ from that? Okay. And, so and what need do they the serve for you? The Facebook groups that I mentioned before, and I did go through them quite quickly, with the She Recovers um, Facebook group, um, the Unruffled I'm also a member of, and Home Is. Uh, and then the UK-based groups that I've just um, uh, become a member of are Club Soda and Women Who Don't Drink. I use these. They're on my Facebook feeds all the time. I hardly get my own Facebook things. Um, I have to go through all the She Recovers or the Unruffled or the Homies, um, Club Soda, Women Don't Drink. And for me, it's 
it gives me hope because there's people with long-term sobriety. It helps me to support others when someone says, oh, I've just stopped drinking and I feel really tired. And I could just say, yeah, I felt tired for two months, absolutely dog-tired. I had to come home from work and have a nap. Um, and it's your body recovering. So I can give my experience to others. We can help celebrate people. And I know that some people who are on the Facebook pages, they're not going to AA meetings. They're not doing anything else other than on those websites. So having support from around the world, men and women, some, some are just women only, some are men and women. I think it's a massive thing for people um, who don't feel like they're on their own, who want to share their feelings of guilt or their feelings of happiness. Um, and there's some great posts on there and some great support. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a big part of my recovery, having a look through those, liking some, you know, commenting on others, um, helping some people. I think it's, it just it, it, it does it for me anyway. It's great. Do you find that not just taking strength from those pages, but mm-hmm. giving service by commenting, encouraging, weighing in on other people's I posts? Think, how um, does that feed your recovery? What I feel, it, it gives me a sense of purpose. It's, it's good for my self-esteem because obviously one of the things for me is my own self-esteem and my feeling of worthiness. Um, and it helps me by supporting others. Um, by helping people with um, my, uh, you know, the things that I've done and the way that I went about things. It just, it's a feel-good thing, I think, for me, Um, but also a feeling of being useful as well to others Um, because I, you know, it's not long ago where I was desperate and uh, just to have somebody comment means a lot, means a lot to a lot of people who are very lonely out there. Yeah. That's so well said. Well, we are out of time for today. I've had such a nice time getting to know you, and I'm so grateful that uh, you were <coughs> persistent in uh, the technology involved in, in connecting today and giving service to Bubble Hour listeners by spending some time sharing your story. Before we go, do you have any final thoughts or words of encouragement um, for folks out there listening I today? Think, keep it simple. Keep it simple. It takes commitment and hard work, mm-hmm. but... It's so worth it. It's so worth it. You can change, you can turn your life around and change yourself. And it's only got to be a good thing. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Julie. Everyone, thank you for listening today. Take good care of yourselves. Look after your inner child. Look Mm. after the people around you, but, but be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to the Bubble Hour, everyone. Until next time, take good care. own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power weakness had on me. In a dark corner is where shame You're strong just cause you keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the 
Just want to be free from power 